Okay, welcome to part six in our series. We've entitled this Heroes of the What? Heroes of the Faith. So as we're going through the book of Acts, we're noting that, that God raises up people and uses them in really special ways. And this is what the Lord has done throughout, really, church history. I mean, the book of Acts records for us the, the birth of the church, and, and we just see how God's plan is to take ordinary people, raise them up and use them in extraordinary ways when that person is yielded to the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to, this morning, look at the second time the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin, and we're going to note another trait of heroic faith. And this is a trait of heroic faith that God is calling all of us to live out, and in fact, anyone who's here can live out this trait. Any of us can live out any of these traits because we have the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to do so. And yet, they're challenging as well. They're heroic when we live out these traits. So I want us to read this account that puts this trait we're going to talk about today on full display. And I'll point out a few things about it as we go along and kind of set the picture. So we're in Acts chapter 5. And look at verse 12, if you would, and we'll read through verse 29. Now, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. So we showed you a picture of the temple, and uh, here it is again. The early church, when it was born, did not have a building to meet within. There were no church buildings they were meeting in homes and also in the temple. This is a massive complex. 400,000 people could fit in those court areas. And the church would meet in the large setting all around here, and especially in Solomon's colonnade, which was right there. And so miracles are taking place through the apostles. And uh, all the believers would meet in Solomon's colonnade, this area. They would gather. There was a covering there. It was a nice place to meet. No one else, verse 13 says, dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. What's that all about? Well, you read verses 1 through 11, and you learn that a couple named Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, and God literally struck them dead. And so there was this great fear about this new movement called the Way, later it would be called the Church, but so people were a little bit, whoa. The fear of God struck many people. The apostles were greatly admired. But nevertheless, verse 14 says, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The church is growing. Most scholars believe by this time there are 10,000 Christians in Jerusalem. As a result, people uh, brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as they passed by. I mean, can you imagine the hysteria this is creating? Here we have this temple, this religious complex that's designed to offer sacrifice. It's a money-making machine for the Jews. And all of a sudden, a new show enters town. All the people are now going onto the streets, and they're, they're, they're being healed by the apostles. Crowds gathered, verse 16, also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were being healed. The religious establishment is being shaken. 
It'd be like here we are at Three Crosses and we're worshiping in our church and all of a sudden down on Castro Valley Boulevard, a new thing is happening. Everything is flocking there. People are getting healed. And this is really shaking things up. What happens? Verse 17, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, these are those that are controlling the temple. They're the guardians for Judaism. And they're filled with, what does it say? Jealousy. Jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So the apostles get arrested. They bring them to jail, which would have been the Antonia Fortress, which is right here, and also that's a large picture of it. They would have brought the apostles here and imagine them in jail somewhere encased within that complex. Verse 19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Wow. And said, go stand in the temple courts, the angel said, and tell the people about this new life. At daybreak, we're not sure where they spent the night, but at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple courts as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Well, when the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin. We showed you a picture of the Sanhedrin. Here it is. This just kind of doesn't exist today. But it was the Jewish high court of the land, the Supreme Court, 70 members, and then the high priest, so it would be a total of 71, and they would make judgments on religion and all sorts of matters for the Jews. And they called together this assembly of the elders and then sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So then they went back to the Sanhedrin and reported, We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Wow. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard, you know, uh, and the chief priests were at a loss, wondering, what is this going to lead to? Then someone came in and said, look, the men you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people, all the apostles, they're teaching in the temple courts. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared the people would stone them. I mean, the people were in awe. You have to picture at that temple area, hundreds and thousands of people hanging on every word that the apostles are speaking as miracles are taking place. The apostles then were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And this is the first thing he says. Hey, we gave you strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, Jesus' blood. Because the Sanhedrin was behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Can you, that is a gutsy statement. Can you imagine being brought before the Supreme Court? What are you doing? Filling Jerusalem. We said not to teach in this name anymore. And then Peter says, I understand, but we must obey God rather than you. That's gutsy. Let me give you a our hero of the faith trait today. One of the most heroic things you can do is to obey God regardless of the consequences. 
When you and I choose to obey God, regardless of the consequences, that is heroic. I call this kind of obedience radical obedience. You can do whatever you want to me. Sorry, I'm going to obey God. I'm choosing to obey God. Hey, you can take my money. You can take my house. You can fire me from this job. You can take my life. I'm going to obey God. I call this kind of obedience radical obedience because I think it challenges all of us to the core of our being. In reality, there is either obedience to God or disobedience to God. There is no middle ground. The call of every believer is to be 100% committed in obedience to Jesus Christ. That's radical. And yet, that's the call of Scripture. It's the plain call of God's Word. Obedience to God regardless of the cost. How many times are we in situations where we're feeling the pressure, the heat is on, and we struggle with obedience? We know we should do, but the pressure, the temptation, the struggle. And yet we know what Scripture teaches, Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them. That's the call of a disciple, to obey everything regardless of the cost. John 14, 23, Jesus said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Not some of my teaching, all my teaching. Wow. Romans 1, 5, through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Hebrews 5, 9, he became the source of salvation to all who obey him. 2 John 6, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. So let me bring us back to this trait, this hero of the faith trait. One of the most heroic things you and I can do is to obey God regardless of the consequences. Every time you live out an Acts 5.29 moment, you are a hero of the faith. When you say, no, 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 I'm going to obey God. Whatever happens, I'm going to obey God. I'm going to honor God. You're a hero of the faith. So here's the question. How can I become a Christian who obeys God regardless of the consequences? I mean, how can I rise to that level of obedience? And here's a principle. Radical obedience is something you learn by God's grace. It's something we grow in. We learn it, and we're going to learn it from the apostles today. Even Hebrews 5.8 says this about Jesus. He learned obedience from what he suffered you know that usually the times you learn how to obey God is usually in the midst of suffering, a situation that's really difficult. That's where you really learn radical obedience. So how can I become a Christian who lives out radical obedience? You and I must learn this type of obedience, and it, it, it's learned one step at a time. And this morning, I want us to kind of dive into this passage and discover five steps for radical obedience. Here's the first. Radical obedience begins with simple acts of obedience. Now, now here's an obvious truth. All believers must learn to walk in simple obedience before they can practice radical obedience. Radical obedience, it's kind of like a muscle. It's like the more you work out that muscle, the stronger you become. 
Simple obedience comes first and then radical obedience comes later. So let me show you how this is working its way out with the apostles. We see in verse 12 that they're in Solomon's colonnade meeting there. Why, why were they there? Because God told them to wait and minister in Jerusalem. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And they are staying in Jerusalem. Why? Because God called them to. It was an act of obedience. And then you look at verses 18 to 21. They arrested the apostles, put them in public jail. And then as they're in jail, you know, the angel lets them out. But then he says, go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people about this new life. Why were they doing that? Because the angel of God told them to go to that temple. And they're in obedience following God. See, radical obedience starts with simple acts of obedience. It's like when God speaks to you, are you following him in the simple ways? Don't expect to live out some radical type of obedience when you're brought before the Sanhedrin and you're like, I'm going to obey God, I don't care what you guys say. Don't think you're going to get to that point if it's not built on the foundation of simple acts of obedience in your life first. You know, question, just are you obeying God with simple acts of obedience like just prayer? Like just reading your Bible, worship, you know, really engaging in worship, maybe, maybe tithing, giving, maybe fasting. I mean, these, these are all things that are, frankly, simple, taught in the Bible. Uh, serving, not just receiving, but are you actually giving back to God? You know, these, these little things, as we obey God in the little, it prepares us to rise in our obedience to a radical level. And I want to encourage you, many of you display radical obedience to God, and it's because you've grown in your simple acts, and there's a foundation of simple acts of obedience that now you're able to launch off of, and you are a testimony and a hero of the faith because you are obeying God regardless of the sacrifice. It starts with simple acts. Second step for radical obedience is this. Radical obedience requires choosing God over human beings. Now, this sounds so easy, but it's it, it's not. I want you to think about the apostles. Think about the pressure that they must have experienced being brought before the Sanhedrin, the fear. I mean, this is the same guy. This is Caiaphas who is leading the Sanhedrin. This is the guy that masterminded the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And all the apostles saw it happen before their very eyes. Just months prior to this moment where they're being brought in again. This is a satanic ruling body of people. They're evil. And it was at their command, really their orchestration, that Jesus is crucified. And the apostles stated to this entire Sanhedrin, these eight bold words, we must obey God rather than human beings. What they were saying is, we've got to obey God, not you guys. Yeah, I know, you guys see yourself as the authority, the highest authority, the high priest of the land. They viewed themselves as like God. And, and to make this statement is a radical statement of their commitment. Now, let, let's get practical. Uh, in our world today, we're 2,000 years removed from the time of the apostles. It's 2019. 
What does radical obedience, choosing God over human beings, look like for us today? Okay, you're a single woman. The guy is pressuring you to compromise your virtue for acceptance. Are you going to say, I must obey God rather than you? When you do, that is radical obedience to God. You're honoring God. You're going to pay a price for that obedience, but that's radical obedience. It's just like the apostles. You have a great job in sales. Your boss is pressuring you to skew the numbers so the entire apartment will look good. Come on, fudge a little bit. Are you going to obey God or are you going to obey that person? The pressure, the heat is on. Your marriage is struggling. I mean, intimacy is lacking. You've been fighting lately. There is so-and-so at work. No one would know. I mean, they're actually, they've given you the signals that they're interested. You can obey God in rejection of that human being. That's radical obedience. No one in your social network even knows that you're a believer. I mean, how long are you going to stay an undercover Christian? When will you say to yourself, I must obey God rather than all these humans that I'm trying to please and fit in with? Wow. You know you've hurt that person. You've gossiped behind their back. When are you going to say, I must obey God rather than man? I must obey God. I must apologize to that person rather than try to play a game and just kind of allow this to linger. There are a thousand different ways that radical obedience can show up and there's usually always a price tag to following God that you will incur. That's why it's heroic to obey this way. That person needs Jesus. Will you say, I must obey God rather than... Someone told me just this morning they had an opportunity this person was like, well, I, I believe in all religions. I, I, I show deference and honor to all gods. And this person said, why would you do that? They're obeying God rather than just trying to please that person. That's the most insane argument in the world. I believe in all gods. Are you kidding me? That's the broad road that will lead someone to hell. There's only one God that will bring you to heaven. When are we going to stand up and obey God rather than, you know, what is politically correct? Are you kidding me? Where does the Bible teach political correctness? We are cowering to people. Now, I'm not saying be belligerent, but beloved. You know, I believe in every road that leads you to, you know, my court. You're going to follow every road? No, there's one road. Only one road that's going to lead you to where I live. Same thing. There's one way to get to heaven. Now, you can be respectful, but I'm just saying, what is God saying to you and me about this whole principle about radical obedience? It is a hero of the faith trait, and it requires choosing God over people. You know, a Proverbs 29, 25 says, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. So here's just the first two little steps about how we begin to live in radical obedience, like the apostles. 
It begins with simple acts of obedience, and it requires choosing God over human beings. I want you to talk about that. Of the first two steps of radical obedience, which one most speaks to you, maybe most challenges you, and why? Go ahead and take a moment talk about that. All right, let me give you the third step for radical obedience, and it's this. Radical obedience embraces the possibility of persecution. So you have entered into the realm of radical obedience in your life when your obedience, when choosing to obey God in this way, that the Holy Spirit is leading you, might lead to persecution. Verse 29, we must obey God rather than men or human beings is what the apostles said in verse 29. And with those words, they knew that they had crossed the line. They embraced the strong possibility of persecution. And they didn't stop there. If they were going to be persecuted, they were going to make sure everyone knew the reason for their boldness. It was all about the gospel. Look, if you would, at verses 30 to 32. We must obey God rather than human beings. And then Peter goes on to say, the God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. Imagine saying this to the Sanhedrin. Whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel, all of this temple complex that's believing in a false system of forgiveness to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Obey him. Wow. Notice, <laughs> this hits the fan, man. I mean, notice what happened. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious. The idea there is they are gnashing their teeth and wanted to put them to death, just like they did Jesus. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. He stood up in the Sanhedrin. He's one of the 70. And he ordered that the apostles, the men, be put outside. Hey, for a little while. Let's give a little break here. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. He says this, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared claiming to be somebody. And about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed and his followers were dispersed. And all came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolts. He too was killed and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it's going to fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You only find yourselves fighting against God. So they take that reason. They bring the apostles back in, and look at verse 40. What happened? His speech persuaded them. Then they called the apostles in, and, and they do three things to the apostles. Number one, they had them flogged. Now, you'll notice they had them flogged, period. We need to talk about this. Here's a picture of someone being flogged. This is a depiction John MacArthur gives a brief, succinct statement of flogging, and I want to read this to you. Because when we say they were flogged, you need to understand what this means. 
They were brought in, they were stripped. We're not sure how many apostles actually were here. That scripture doesn't say. We know Peter and there were plurality of apostles. Flogging, quote, was something times fatal. A Roman scourge, the instrument used in flogging, was a short wooden handle with numerous long lashes of leather attached to it. Each leather strip had a sharp piece of glass, metal, bone, or other hard object attached to the end of it. The victim would be stripped of all clothing and tied to a post by his wrist with his hands high enough over his head to virtually lift him high off the ground. The feet would be dangling and the skin on the back and the buttocks completely taut. One or two scourge bearers, lictors, would then deliver blows, skillfully laying the lashes diagonally across the back and buttocks with extreme force. The skin would literally be torn away and often muscles were deeply lacerated. It was not uncommon for the scourge wounds to penetrate deep into the kidneys or lacerated arteries, causing wounds that in themselves proved fatal. Some victims died from extreme shock during the flogging. They allowed only 39 lashes. It was thought that 40 could kill. This was the common practice. This was the standard. When it says the apostles were flogged, this is what happened to them. And we can read that in our Bible. That's why I'm telling you, this obedience was radical. They knew the apostles did. What they were setting themselves up for in this statement of faith, we must obey God rather than you. It's radical. Now, the second thing is they ordered them to not speak in the name of Jesus anymore. You can imagine how quiet it must have been in that room. The apostles come in, they're marched up, they're stripped of their clothing, they're hung up. You've got all these Roman soldiers lashing them. It's quiet, it takes time, there's blood everywhere. And they say, now, do not speak in the name of Jesus ever again. You may leave. Now, for you and me, obeying God over people in our culture will probably not mean getting flogged. But in other cultures, it means that. In a few weeks down the line, I'm going to show you a picture of one of the pastors literally being flogged that we support. It happens. You will weep. And if you can't watch, I will have you turn your eyes down. Because I wept. This happens around the world today a lot. Christians today are crucified. You never hear about that. It happens. They're beheaded. Okay, we'll get to that later. But I'm just saying in our culture, this is not what happens. This kind of physical brutality. But there are other types of persecution that we will endure when you obey God not being invited to the party, being overlooked for that promotion, sometimes loneliness or being ridiculed, made fun of, not being asked out because you won't put out, losing that job, not getting that promotion, not being hired, people talking behind your back. Wow. Radical obedience embraces the possibility of persecution. Let me give you a fourth step to learn radical obedience. Radical obedience results in unexplainable joy. (laughs) 
Notice what God brought about because of the apostles' radical obedience. Now, did the apostles leave the Sanhedrin dejected and broken and depressed? No. Just the opposite. Look at verse 41. This is so amazing. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. What? I'm sure everyone in that Sanhedrin, all 71 of them, were literally aghast and they could not believe what they were witnessing with their only eyes. The apostles were rejoicing. The, literal, the word means full of joy to overflowing. They're being whipped, they're bloody, and they are rejoicing. Wow. I have interviewed so many persecuted Christians who've experienced the worst kind of suffering, way worse than what we just heard here. And, and every time I interview them, joy is all over their faces. Every single time. As they're telling their stories. Every time. Let me tell you one story. Her name's Laura. There's a picture of Laura right now. Beautiful Chinese pastor that we support. And <laughs> so the, the, she comes to Christ, never heard about Jesus, comes to Jesus, is so passionate about the Chinese knowing Christ, she gets trained, one-year training, and then she's sent into unreached areas, and she goes to this mountainous area to preach the gospel, and hundreds turn to Jesus. The next night, she goes to another mountainous area, villages, preaches the gospel. Hundreds are turning to Christ there as well, but the police hear about it, come in, it's raining, it's dark at night, they're trying to do this, you know, as discreetly as they can. They arrest her, they, they bound her, they handcuffed her, and literally, she says, they drug me down the hill, through the brush, down through the mud. They bring her to a detention area, they hung her up with the uh, handcuffs on a pole, and then they beat her, they broke her leg through the beating. She spent the entire night suspended in handcuffs over a pole. The next morning, they bring her out, and they put her in a wheel cart, and they put a sign around her. It's like a wheelbarrow. A sign around her that says, I am a traitor, and they wheel her throughout the entire city. Then they bring her to jail. And in jail, uh, the first jail they bring her to, it's kind of an insane asylum for women. And she goes into this jail, and she starts Bible studies with all the women. And God is healing all these women and they're coming to Christ. And actually the jailer kind of likes her because he's, she's making it easy on him. All these women aren't nuts anymore. They're being healed and finding Christ. And, and she's telling me this story and there's smiles all over her face. I'm like, and then she says this to me. Well, but the next time I was in prison, I was like, what? <laughs> she, and it, she's just getting more excited. Tell, then they bring her to another prison. And there, they, they, she goes, and this was the greatest. And I'm like, why, Laura? She goes, because they had a tower. And I came into this prison, and I'm sharing Christ with people, and over 60 people came to Christ. And then she goes, then they gave me the opportunity to preach from the tower to the entire prison. And I just sit here listening to these stories, and beloved, it, it blows me away, the joy that comes. Radical obedience results in unexplainable joy. 
Paul talked about the fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. It is supernatural, the joy in the presence of God that comes over you when you take a hit for Jesus Christ. He does not leave you alone. The power of God comes over you with a joy that is absolutely unspeakable that unfortunately most Americans have never tasted because we live in a country that really does not persecute us. But I want you to know there is a joy there that is beyond comprehension. I can't even explain it. William Barclay famously describes New Testament Christians as having these three characteristics. Number one, they are always in trouble because they're obeying Jesus. Number two, they were filled with an irrational love for everyone. And number three, they were absurdly happy. That was his description of Christians in the first century. Radical obedience, it comes with a paradox, something that is true, even though it doesn't seem like it would be true. And this is the paradox. The more you radically obey Jesus, the more joyful you will become. It is so true. I taste this in my own life, but I'm going to be honest with you, I have so far to go. But I taste a little bit of, I think, what the New Testament is speaking about. Every Tuesday, for example, let me just be honest, is the day that, that in obedience to God, I fast and I pray. If you saw me in my room, I'm studying God's word, but then I'm on flat on my face praying. I've got a map of the world. I'm praying for the world. And it is without question the most joyful day of the week I have, my day of fasting and prayer. I wish I could have that kind of day every day, but I can't. And it's out of just obedience, call it radical obedience or whatever, but it, it yields joy. Uh, Tracy and I, in obedience to God, have, have made the commitment that every year we will give a greater, a higher percentage of our finances to God. And every year, there is nothing but joy, joy, joy. We look back and we just go, the experience is supernatural. I can't even describe it for you. I obey God. For me, personally, this is what obedience to God looks like. For me, it looks like going to uh, dangerous areas in the world to travel, to meet God's people in conditions that would shock you. And for me, uh, the, you, I, the, I can't explain to you what it's like for me to be with my brothers and sisters in the, the, the joy that I experience in a little hut in the middle of nowhere is, is beyond, it, it, it just, it's for, it, this is what God calls me to, and I can't explain it, but it is the byproduct of radical obedience, and I'm just tasting it. I have so far to go. I'm nothing like any of these brothers and sisters that I go to serve. They're the real heroes. Radical obedience results in an unexplainable joy. Some of you know that. You've experienced it. Many of you have experienced it, and it's beautiful. This step to learn radical obedience is that radical obedience continues with faithful obedience. And I just love how this chapter ends because this is just, look at verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. We're going to flog you. And they go out joyful and saying, guess what? Day after day, they just kept on obeying Jesus Christ. Radical obedience is faithful obedience. It's doing what God has called you to do. And watch us, so many of you in this room are modern-day heroes of the faith. Why? 
because you are consistently faithful doing what God has called you to do, and it's awesome. Day after day, you keep teaching Sunday school. Day after day, you keep loving your husband, your wife. Day after day, you keep giving support to God's work. Day after day, you keep praying for your friends and your family to come to know Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord. Day after day, you keep serving in that ministry, and no one really sees what you're doing. God does. You just keep serving in that ministry because God's called you to it, and you are just being faithful. You know, here is the faith. They seldom, if ever, see themselves as heroic. Trust me, this room is filled with heroes of the faith. A hero of the faith is someone who just continues to do, day in and day out, what God has called them to do. And it's beautiful. So this is my encouraging verse to you, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Wow. So then we have three more marks of heroic faith. Of these final three steps for radical obedience, which one most speaks to you, most challenges you, most encourages you? Why don't you take a moment and talk about that? Okay, let me uh, bring us back to this hero of the faith trait. Just try to massage this into your hearts. You know, what does this really look like for you? How can you be heroic in this way? I mean, this is such a challenge. It really is to all of us. And yet in the power of the Holy Spirit, there is something here for you in your life, even this week, in terms of how we all live. One of the most heroic things you can do is just obey God. That, that, that can just look so different for each of us. Obeying him regardless of the consequences, that's radical obedience. I don't know what that it looks like for you, but it looks like something for each of us. And what a moment this was for Peter and the apostles. I mean, just to me, it's amazing that they would say, we must obey God rather than human beings. And you know, I can see Jesus from heaven seated at the right hand of the Father, looking down, seeing Peter say that, and going, did you see that, Father? That's Peter. He denied me just a few months ago. Did you see that, Father? Jesus saying that's heroic, and it is. Peter and the apostles, they're just ordinary guys like you and me, who obeyed God in an extraordinary way. That is a hero of the faith. The Holy Spirit is there to allow you and me to obey him in extraordinary ways. God wants to raise you up and me up to be a modern-day hero of the faith, obeying him regardless of the consequences. Radical obedience begins with just simple acts of obedience. It requires choosing God over human beings. That's radical. It embraces the possibility of persecution. That's radical. It results in unexplainable joy. That's supernatural. And it continues with faithful obedience. That's daily. You will never regret obeying God. One of my favorite moments as a father, I knew this was going to be a little bit heavy in some ways, just because I have to model the text. When a preacher preaches, if 
if the delivery does not model the text, I'm not sure that's honoring God. This is kind of a heavy moment, but I need to begin, I need, I'm going to end with a light note, kind of a fun moment to illustrate something important. So one of my favorite moments as a father when our kids were young <laughs> was sports. And I remember taking Luke to a t-ball game. Remember t-ball? <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, these little kids, you know, they, they, you, they show up and you've got the visitor and the home team and we're in the stands and I wasn't coaching that game, the coaches. And, and, the, and I remember, you know, they all get up and they're little pudgy little guys and gals and they put the tee ball, you know, up on a tee, okay? And they get their bat and they hit it 10 feet, you know? And then they run to first base, you know what I'm saying? That kind of thing. And it's a big deal, and the parents, it's more, you know, they're all excited. I remember being in the stands, and this little pudgy dude gets up, and, 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 and just like with other kids, <clears throat> hits the ball, and it goes 10 feet. And he just starts taking off. And he runs, hits first base, boom! By the time he hits first base, somehow the kids pick up the ball. And they're like, okay. Then he ran, and without even knowing where the ball is, he hits first base, he rounds, goes to second. And then they throw the ball to second, of course. No one catches it. It goes 10 feet past them. Then the kid hits second base. I think, okay, he's going to stop. No, he hits second base. Boom. Doesn't know where the ball is. He just keeps going. And he's going to third base. And by this time, all the parents in the stands are like, this is incredible. And this kid is just like oblivious to the ball, doesn't know what's going on. He's just running. Little pudgy dude. By the time they pick up the ball, they throw it, overthrow it to third, hits third base, and I'm thinking, that kid's going to stop. No, boom, hits it. He's heading home. I mean, ESPN is breaking out. The cameras are everywhere. Every parent is up. Go, go. We're all rooting this kid on. He comes home, and he hits home plate, you know, and he just, like, keeps running going home. You know, he has no idea what he's really done. I'm sitting there just looking at this in absolute elation going, that kid, and everyone knew this in the stands, he did what his daddy told him to do. You hit that ball, son, and you just run those bases. <laughs> daddy never told him to stop. He's like, okay, I'll run the bases. He's just being obedient to his dad. And look what happened. Your father, obey me. Miracles will happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that in your power we can't obey you. We kind of think, oh, we can only make it to first, and we get human reasoning involved. And Lord, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts this morning. I don't know exactly what radical obedience looks like for our lives, each of us, but I think your Holy Spirit has a way of communicating that to us. You're the God of the miraculous. You're the God that takes ordinary people. And as we choose to obey you, you turn that into something extraordinary. And it's heroic. And everyone sees it. And it is a testimony to the glory of God. I don't know what the Lord is saying, but would you just take a moment in your own heart to him. Talk to him about what he is speaking to you about right now. And then I'll close this in prayer. Take a moment.
Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's so good to be together. Thanks for speaking to us, encouraging us. Send us out, Lord, to be heroic for the glory of God. All God's people said?